This morning we are continuing in our series from the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves in Mark chapter 5. So you can turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. How many of you are, you consider yourself a good deal hunter? Anyone that's from your, when you go shopping, you always find the deals. How many of you, you're not a deal hunter, but you're married to someone who's a deal hunter? And so your shopping journey follows theirs. That's kind of my situation. I'm, I'm not the best at finding deals, but I'm married to a woman who is amazing at finding deals. And I don't even think she realizes that there's things in the front of the stores. I think she just just walks a straight line always to the back of the stores where, what's there? The clearance rack, right? I'm like, babe, like you're walking by all this, there's all this nice stuff up here, but like just straight to the clearance rack. And there's all sorts of deals, you know, 30% off. My least favorite is when you have to match the sticker color to the percentage off. And then you got to, it's like, what kind of a like game is this? Like, this is like a kindergarten game. I got to match colors and then I got to do math. And, uh, but the simplest discount that I like is simply called BOGO. Do you know what that is? Buy one, get one. I love buy one. Sometimes they do buy one, get one 50% off. I don't fall for that. But buy one, get one, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Now, if you're a fan of buy one, get one deals, you're going to love the story this morning from Mark chapter 5, because this is sort of a buy one, get one free. This looks like it's one story. But it's two stories. You're going to get a story for free here. I'm going to read it to you, uh, beginning in verse 22. This is a little more text than I normally read on a Sunday morning, but it's important for us to get a sense of this entire story. And also, I think it's actually very interesting. So let's read. It'll be on the screen for you if you need it. I'm reading to you from the ESV translation. It says this, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Now a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, some sort of a hemorrhaging issue, some sort of a internal bleeding issue for 12 years. She had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather she'd grown worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So there's your free story. Let's go back to the other one. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of synagogue, he said to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, in this culture, they would actually hire professional mourners. So this isn't all genuine grief. Some of this are people who are paid, actually, to grieve loudly. And this is the scene that Jesus walks into. Verse 39 says, when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, 
but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. So if you ever wondered, was Jesus a foodie? Jesus was a foodie. (laughs) First thing on his mind was, get this girl some yummy food. Two things we're going to learn in these two stories. Number one, Jesus is greater than our greatest fears. Jesus is greater than our greatest fears. This story, these stories are full of fears. Now, what are the greatest fears of humankind? I was looking online yesterday. I said, what are some of the most, you would, you would know if I were to ask, but some of the greatest fears are the, are fears, the fear of heights, right? Anybody admit that they have a fear of heights? They don't like being up high. Okay, that's fine. Fear of heights. The fear of the dark. Some people, especially kids, a lot of times don't like the dark. Some people have a fear of small spaces. It's called claustrophobia. They, they, they have a fear of small spaces, but interestingly enough, there are people who have fears of wide open spaces, the exact opposite. Some people have the fear of spiders. Anybody not like spiders or snakes? You know what mine is? Mine is, you probably know this, it's rodents. I don't like any little rodent. There's something about their little chubby body that bothers me. I don't want them. And I've said it before, but uh, rats are the worst because, or sorry, bats are the worst because bats are basically super rodents. They can fly. (laughs) Some people have fears of clowns, right? Uh, and then one of the biggest fears that uh, humans have is the fear, of, the fear of public speaking. In fact, a lot of times when they do surveys, public speaking is the greatest fear, and beneath it is death, which means some people would rather die than get up and speak in front of a people. So we have a lot of fears, but I think that when we look at this story, we see a fear that we can all relate to. One of the greatest fears that we have as individuals is the fear of being on, left out, the fear of being on the outside, being left out, being ignored, not mattering, not being included. Maybe it looks like this for you, not being picked for a promotion at work. You feel like you've been left on the outside, not being invited to a social event, to a wedding event, to a dinner party, being left out of an important conversation that you think you should be in, or being left out of a meeting at work. Oh, let's be honest, most of us would be glad to be left out of meetings at work. Um, Maybe being ignored by a family member. Uh, And it's not just that we're afraid of being left out or afraid of being on the outside. We have that fear for the people that we love. We don't want other people to be left out. I remember last summer at soccer practice seeing Lilia get picked last on her team for a scrimmage. And it shouldn't bother me. It didn't bother her at all, but it bothered me because I, I didn't like the fact that she was the last, that she, I I thought maybe she's going to feel like she's on the outside, That may or may not be the reason why I'm the assistant coach this year for her soccer team. (laughs) First pick, every practice. Half joking. None of us, none of us want to feel like we're on the outside. Now, when we think about these two stories and you think about the woman and you think about the little girl, it's pretty obvious which one's on the outside, right? Think about it. The one, the, the girl is young. The one girl's young. She has her life ahead of her. The other lady is much older and People might, she might think her life is behind her. The, the girl is desperately loved. I mean, her father uh, runs and humbles himself 
before Jesus. Now, he was a religious leader. The people that he led did not like Jesus. In fact, they ended up rejecting and crucifying Jesus, but he was so desperate that he ran to Jesus. He didn't just run to him, but in an act of sort of unusual uh, humility, he fell at his feet. They don't do that. They didn't do that. He falls at his feet. So this, this little girl is fought for. She's loved. But what about the other lady? She's not. She's alone. She's having to fight for herself. The, the, the young girl, everyone is coming after her in the story. She's being pursued. They're walking towards her. But the older lady is the pursuer. She's having to fight through the crowd to get to Jesus. Everyone is coming for the girl, but everyone is blocking the older lady. She's the outsider in this story. Now, there's two other ways that this woman that has this issue of blood is the outsider and has been for 12 years. And the first is this. On the account of her condition, she is not permitted to go into public and be in public places without letting everyone know that she's unclean. She has to let people know, according to the Old Testament law, that she has this issue. Now imagine having to do this in public. Imagine having to do this everywhere you go. Imagine going on a first date with somebody and having to tell them all the worst things about yourself. Here's all the terrible things about me that you might want to know. Or having to go on that first date with bedhead or morning breath or having to bring along with you your most embarrassing family member on the freight. We, we, we wouldn't want to do that. But this is this, this woman's life. Every time she steps out in the public, she has to put her worst foot forward. She has to draw attention to her biggest flaw, and she's had to do so for 12 years. So everywhere she goes, she's the outsider, and everyone notices her. But there's another way that she's an outsider. Because of her condition, she is ceremonially unclean. And what this means is that she's not allowed to enter the temple. There's a specific place in the temple at this time for women to come and worship. She wasn't allowed to enter. The temple represented where humans, where we, would meet with God. And so here she is. She can't even come in and meet with God. She doesn't have a place where she can offer sacrifices, where she can worship, where she can join with other people who believe it. She, she must feel like she's not just on the outside horizontally with other people, but she's on the outside vertically with God. She is the outsider. But look at this story, and look at how Jesus deals with her fear of being an outsider. First off, he stops for her. He didn't have to stop. She got the healing. If he stopped or didn't stop, she was healed. But he stops for her. And he stops as he's on his way to heal the daughter of the ultimate insider. So he says to the insider, you're just going to have to wait because I have someone that I love here and I'm going to deal with. And everybody else, can you imagine what everyone in the crowd thought about her and tried to say to her? You think you're more important than that little girl? You're old. You've been sick for 12 years. This little 12-year-old girl, she's on her deathbed. Do you know whose daughter she is? Do you know who they are? But Jesus stopped for her because he loved her. And he loves people who think they're outsiders. He loves people who have the fear of being on the outside. And then he did something in this story, or I should say, he says something in this story that once you get it, it will move you profoundly. He looks at her and he says, daughter. Now, why is that significant? And no other point in any of the four gospels does Jesus call a woman daughter. This is the only time in all of the accounts. And you know why it's here? Because Peter remembered it. Remember we talked about how Peter was the eyewitness source for Mark who wrote this gospel? So when Peter's telling uh, this story to Mark, it was so significant to Peter that he remembered. He goes, oh, you know what was the most amazing thing? When Jesus looked at her and we thought maybe he's gonna rebuke her, Maybe he's going to tell her she's, she's done something that's, uh, uh, she's violated a social etiquette by being in public and sneaking through people and touching people. 
Maybe he's going to give her a piece of his mind, but instead, the first word out of his mouth to her is the word daughter. And when he said daughter to her, he was like saying, you're, you're on the inside. You're part of the family. He's bringing her into the family of God. That does something for me because what it means is that no matter what my journey has been up until meeting Jesus, that when I meet him, when I reach out and receive what he has for me by faith, the second he turns and looks at you, he calls you son or he calls you daughter and he brings you into the family. What's interesting is that even after she receives her healing, she's still afraid. Well, why is she still afraid? I think there's a couple reasons. She's afraid because of what is everybody else going to think, but there's another reason. By touching Jesus, according to the Old Testament law, you know what she's done to him? She's made him ceremonially unclean. It's like when kids play cooties. You know, you touch a kid and you got cooties, and now you touch somebody else and they got cooties. It's actually the same sort of deal. If somebody who was ceremonially unclean touched somebody else, then that person became ceremonial unclean. Well, why does that matter? Because Jairus asked Jesus to do what? Come and lay your hands on my daughter. According to the religious law of that day, he couldn't do it anymore. She hadn't just slowed him down and stopped him. She had potentially ruined the whole day, the whole plan. But we learned something tremendously powerful here about Jesus, and it's this, that Jesus is greater than any law. Jesus is greater than any purity law. Whereas every other person was made unclean when they were touched by someone who was unclean, the exact opposite happens here. An unclean person touches Jesus, and what happens? The unclean person becomes clean. And this is the God that we serve. Now, there are people maybe sitting in this room this morning, people that live in your homes, people that are in your neighborhoods, people that are in your workplaces and go to your school who think that Jesus can't possibly make them clean. Have you ever heard people say, I can't walk in, if I ever walked into church, the, the whole building would fall down. I don't even know what that means, but I've heard people say it. Apparently they think that's what happens when sinners walk into the church. Problem is, is every Sunday morning, sinners are walking into this church because we're here, right? But there are people who believe that you, that Jesus cannot make them clean. He cannot overcome what's happened in their lives. They think about all their mistakes and their failures and their past and their struggle, but those things do not have to defeat you. And those things do not have to define you because when you reach out and touch Jesus, the clean, his cleanness becomes transferred to you. His righteousness becomes yours. And that's the hope that we have. Jesus is greater than any fear. He's greater than any darkness. He's greater than any shame that has been in your life or in my life. And here's what he's done. He has endured the pain, he has carried the shame, and he has paid the price for every sin that you and I have done and will do. So you know what we can do? We can reach to him in faith. We can reach out to him in faith, and we can believe that Jesus has the power to change every area of our lives and to change every life in our area. Jesus has the power to change every area of our lives. Does any, you don't have to raise your hand, but does anybody have an area of their life that they still need Jesus to do a little work in? Just a little bit. Uh, and let, me fo- let, let someone follow you around 24-7. I'm sure they'll point out for you a few little areas, maybe in traffic, uh, your behavior in traffic or something. They'll say, you still might need a little work right there. Jesus still needs to work in every area of our lives, but he's not just working in every area of our lives, although that's where it starts. He wants to work in every life in our area. And what's our area? Our area is wherever you live, wherever you walk, wherever you shop, wherever you work, wherever you eat, wherever you go, that's your area. And that's our vision statement here at Trinity Assembly, simply that we would see uh, gospel transformation, life change in every area of our lives and in every life 
in our area. So what we're saying to God is, God, do it in me first, change me, conform me into the image of your son, but don't just let it stop there because what Jesus has done to you, he wants to do through you. What he's done for you, he wants to do for others. If God has blessed you, it's so that you will bless those around you. And so this is the Jesus that we serve. He has the power to do this, to change every area of our lives and to change every life in our area. You know, there's another fear in this story that Jesus is greater than, it's the fear of death. You know, fear is often related to the unknown. We're afraid of things that we've never experienced before. And death is the great unknown. As long as you're here breathing and sitting here, you don't know what it's like. You don't, know, you don't really know. When we think about this story, there's something very interesting that happens. Jairus comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is near death. Can you come and heal her? Jesus walks with Jairus, and along the way, he stops to heal the woman with the issue of blood. And I have to think that for just a moment, for Jairus, it actually gave him more faith. He's like, oh my goodness, if Jesus can heal this outsider, if he did it for this nobody, surely he's gonna do it for my daughter. I'm an important person. And right after Jesus has finished saying the words to the woman, people come from Jairus' house and say to him, your daughter's passed away. She's dead. And then they say, don't bother the teacher anymore. Now, what does that show us about their expectations? What they thought Jesus could do. See, Jairus came for a healing, which he thought, well, that's possible because I've heard Jesus heals. But what he needs now is not a healing. What he needs now is a resurrection. And he thinks that's not possible. That's impossible. And listen, this morning, you might fear that life has passed you by and your dreams have passed you by, and your hopes have passed you by, and you've been asking God for a healing and for a miracle, and it hasn't come, and now you're looking at the situation, you're going, now I need a resurrection. (laughs) It's not a healing anymore. It's gone from dying to dead, whether it's a relationship in your life, whether it's a hope that you have for, for yourself or for someone else, whether it's a gift that God has given you. You've been asking God, would you heal? Would you restore? And it's gone so long that now you're thinking that thing is dead and now it needs a resurrection. Well, here's the thing. Jesus is greater than the fear of death. And Jesus is the power of life and the power of resurrection. We don't have to lose hope just because something now looks like it needs to be resurrected. Jesus is still on the scene. How do we know that Jesus is greater than death? greater than the fear of death. Well, of course, at the end of the story, he raises this girl from the dead. She is actually dead, and he raises her from the dead, but it's not just that he raises her from the dead, it's the way that he goes about it. Did you notice? In verse 41, it says that he took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kumi, which is an Aramaic phrase, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. He didn't get in her face and scream. He didn't grab her by her shoulders and shake her. Basically, what he's doing here is he's just waking her up. I know all of us sleep at different levels of sleep, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking Like, my wife is a light sleeper. She'll wake up, like if Madeline just makes a little noise in the room next to us, she's like wide awake and goes and gets her. Like a jet could land in our backyard, I would sleep through it. Like, I'm just like, huh, I'm, I always have to wake up, I always have to wake up in the morning and ask Aaron, what happened last night? Anything happened last night? Because I, I, I'm going to sleep through whatever happened. Some people are light sleepers, some people are heavy sleepers. I don't know exactly, but with light sleepers, all you have to say is just, good morning, good morning. That's kind of what Jesus does here. He just goes to the little girl and just takes her by hand and just says, good morning, wake up. And we saw this last week when we looked at Mark chapter four when Jesus stilled the storm. 
We saw that he didn't roll up his sleeves. He didn't work himself up into a frenzy. He just pulls this little girl out of the grip of our great enemy, just like he's gently waking up a child from a nap. This is amazing. Jesus reaches right into death and pulls this girl out. This is the God that we serve. He's greater than our greatest fears. But not only is Jesus greater than our greatest fears, second point this morning is this. Jesus is greater than our greatest hopes. He's greater than our greatest fears, but he's also greater than our greatest hopes. You know, I said that one of our great fears is being on the outside. Well, one of our great hopes in life is that we can be on the inside, that we'll have status and acceptance, and that will be noticed. And most people's efforts in, uh, uh, on this planet to be on the inside are based on one of two things. And the first thing is this, earthly accomplishments. We think if we do enough things, if we accomplish enough things, then we'll have the status that we want. Then we'll be noticed, then we'll be celebrated, then people will pay attention to us. So it's our earthly accomplishments. It's either ours or it's someone else's. And you notice that this woman with the issue of blood, it said that she had suffered under the hands of many doctors, or I think it said, yeah, a great deal from many doctors. She had placed her hope in medicine, she had placed her hope in healers, and she had suffered. She had lost all her money trying to get cured, and she was worse than she started. So here she is placing her hopes, thinking, I'm sick, but I know that other people's accomplishments, their intellect, their ability, their, their knowledge, their expertise is going to get me out of this. And we find in the story that it doesn't always work that way. Now, by the way, this is not a case, uh, this is not a, a verse that you can use to say, well, this is why I don't go to the hospital. <laughs> and this is why I don't take my medicine. And this is why I don't go to the doctors. We just like to throw anointing oil all over the place. Like, there still are great times and a lot of appropriate times. In fact... Uh, the word doctor here is, is a little bit of a misnomer because it's not like she was, this is 2,000 years ago. She wasn't going to the type of doctors you and I go to today. I, I actually was researching this and I found a few cures that they would recommend for somebody with her issue, okay? This, will, this might be interesting to you. In the Talmud, there are 11 cures listed for you if you have the issue of blood. Let me just read a few of them to you. I'll, I'll read you three. One of them says, Take of Persian onions three pints, boil them in wine, give them to drink, give her to drink, and say, arise from thy flux. So boil a bunch of onions in some wine, drink it, and say, arise from your flux. That was, that, was, that was cure number one. Cure number two, if this does not cure her, like if this does not cure her, who would have thought? Set her in a place where two ways meet. Set her in an in intersection, basically. Set her in a way where two ways meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come behind and frighten her <laughs> and say, arise from thy flux. <laughs> in another place, they recommend that the afflicted woman carry a barley corn that had been taken from the droppings of a white she-donkey. All right, so, I mean... This isn't exactly the type of medicine you and I are getting right now. This is more like superstition, right? But she was so desperate, she probably did all of these things. She probably had a barley of corn from a white sheet donkey's poop on her when she was crawling through the crowd. She had done all of these things. She had spent all of her money, and none of it had done anything for her. Now, Jairus' daughter, when we think about the man Jairus, many scholars believe that he was the head ruler of the synagogue. It says it in the text. 
If he was the head ruler, this means that he was the board of elders, he was responsible for the conduct of the services, and he was a man of wealth and prestige. So he had everything. He had everything that anybody could possibly hope to have, but when his daughter was lying there dying on the bed, what could it do for him? Absolutely nothing. I remember going to a wedding, uh, one of my friend's weddings in Maryland, and they had it in the back of a house, and it wasn't just a normal house. It was the, most, it was the largest, most beautiful house I've ever seen in my life. It's, it's, it's actually been featured in like magazines where they show big homes. And it's just this beautiful home. I, I don't even know how to put a price on it. And the guy who owned it was very gracious, and he, he let us in the wedding party stay in the house. And the day of the wedding, it was like 120 degrees out. It was so hot. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it was so hot. And uh, for the wedding reception, they put out these big tubs filled with ice and drinks. So you can walk around, of course, and grab a drink wherever you want. Well, after the wedding party ended, or after the reception ended, everybody left, and we were still there because we were staying at the house one more night. And this man had a little boy who was about two years old, and we were all sitting around the pool, and we were relaxing and enjoying the pool and whatnot. And all of a sudden, I hear this man scream at the top of his lungs, the loudest, most horrifying scream I've ever heard, and he's pointing. And I follow his finger to where he's pointing, and I look over, and his son is upside down in one of those buckets, which, which is completely melted during the course of the day and now is just filled with water. And the boy is upside down kicking his feet. And this man takes off running and gets to him. Just to relieve you, the boy was fine. The boy was okay, thankfully. But I thought back to that moment later, I thought, this man has everything that the world says is worth putting your hope in. He has a great job. He has a great family. He has a lot of wealth. He has an amazing home right on the water there in Maryland. He, has a, he took us out on his boat. I mean, but in that moment, if you'd said to him, will you trade it all for your son to be okay? He, he would have. So we put our hopes in things that ultimately can't give us what we most need. Those hopes don't have power over death. They simply don't. They can't give. Now, Jesus is greater than hoping in any earthly accomplishment because he is the one and only source of hope that if you get him, he will truly satisfy you. But if you fail him, he can forgive you completely. Nothing else you hope in has the power to forgive you when you fail. So some people try to get on the inside through earthly accomplishments. But the second way that people try to get on the inside is through religious activity. And Jairus was this religious man who said, if I'm religious, then if I live right, then God will do things my way and on my schedule, and God owes me. But then God stops on the, or Jesus stops on his way to heal his daughter to deal with this old lady. Now, if a chronically, I don't work in the hospital. We have some people here that work in the hospital in the emergency, emergency department. But if a chronically ill older lady comes in with an issue that's been bothering her for 12 years, and a little girl comes in who's on her deathbed in an acute situation... Who's going to get the attention the fastest? The little girl. So when Jesus stops for this woman, it's borderline malpractice if he was a doctor. He stops for her. I'm sure Jairus was thinking, not only is she not in as bad of a situation as my daughter, but she's a nobody. I'm a religious person. I've lived my life a certain way. But Jesus is greater than the hope of religious activity and moral superiority because the gospel says this to us, and you have to hear this this morning. You can't get yourself on the inside by being better or living better or doing the right things. You can't do enough good things to put God in debt to you. 
God's not in debt to you or me. And there are many people who sit in churches who are religiously active and morally upright, but they're actually far from God because they're not honest and humble enough to trust fully and solely in Jesus. If you can look into their hearts, they're still trusting in their own righteousness, their own goodness, their own performance, their own work. But the Bible makes it clear that our personal goodness doesn't mean anything when it comes to God's standard. It's not that we don't have enough. We don't have the right currency. So our only hope is in realizing and believing that Jesus lived right and got it right in our place so that now and forever, we are indebted to him. He's not indebted to us. Jesus is our, greater than our greatest fears and Jesus is greater than our greatest hopes. So what does this mean for us? Now, let me just take a couple minutes and apply this to our lives. I believe that the motivation behind everything you and I do can be traced back to either a fear or a hope. You can think about it later and let me know if you disagree. But I believe that the motivation behind every choice you and I make, have ever made, will ever make, is rooted in either a fear or a hope. Now, I have three little girls, and uh, when you become a parent, um, I feel like you start to wear all new, you start to learn all sorts of new jobs and responsibilities and wear new hats. Two of the things that I realize I have to be as a parent is a detective <laughs> and a mind reader. Because this is what most of my conversations with my girls sound like when something crazy happens. What happened? Who did it? Who hit who first? Who said what? For, I, I'm a detective. Like I'm trying to crack the case. But then I asked, then after I think I've cracked the case, I moved to questions like, why did you do that? What were you thinking? What was going through your head? And now I'm trying to be a mind reader. So I feel like we should get training as parents and being detectives. Maybe in our parenting class in March, Lisa and Derek will train us in being detectives and being mind readers. You know, when I finally get my girls to open up and say why they did what they did, eventually they'll say something like this. Well, it's because I thought that, 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 that. Or it's because I, I wanted to fill in the blank. What they're really saying, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm really taking the time to listen, what they're really saying is, I did that because I was afraid that, or I did that because I hoped that. Everything we do is traced to our fears and our hopes. That's the motivation. Now, fear tells us this. You better do something or else. That's how fear works. Let me give you some examples. You better work hard or else. You better be good or else. You better uh, succeed or else. You better stand out or else. You better find that special someone or else. Fear driving us. Then hope tells us that we better do something not or else, but we better do something so that. That's hope. Let me give you the examples. You better work hard so that, fill in the blank. Be good so that. Succeed so that. Stand out so that. Find that special someone so that. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with healthy fears. We need them. There's nothing wrong with hope and hopes in life. But when, they, when a hope becomes our greatest hope, then we have a problem. And we can turn anything into a greatest hope. Let's just lean in this a little bit more before we close. Uh, our greatest fear in life, your greatest fear, is often just the opposite of your greatest hope. Your greatest fear basically is, what happens if I don't get the thing that I'm hoping in the most? Your greatest fear is almost always the opposite of your greatest hope. Let me give you some examples. If your greatest hope is success and achievement, if that's, where, uh, if that's sort of your vision of the good life, then your greatest fear will be not measuring up, not doing enough. If your greatest hope is education and intellectualism, then your greatest fear is looking like a fool, being dumb, 
losing an argument. If your greatest hope is in finding someone else, then your greatest fear is in being alone, never being found. If your greatest hope is living how others think you should, basically your greatest hope is being a people pleaser, then what's your greatest fear? Disappointing others. You see how this, this works? One more. If your greatest hope is being respected, then your greatest fear is being exposed to be a fraud, to be found out. This is the sort of uh, unavoidable relationship between our hopes and our fears. So if you really want to know, what's my greatest hope in life? Do I have a hope that's greater than Jesus? Simply examine your greatest fears. What are your greatest fears? And then what is that fear? What's on the other side of that fear? What's the thing that it's keeping you from? See, the real problem here, and here's what I'm trying to say to you this morning, and hopefully you're getting this. The real problem is that whatever you make your greatest hope becomes your true God, becomes your functional Savior, becomes an idol to you. And even in religion, and even in church, and even in Christianity, it's actually very easy to use people's fears to get them to look like Christians. It's very easy to use people's hopes to get them to behave well. It sounds something like this. Go to church, or else, what will people think of you? Tell people about Jesus or else they will go to hell and you might too. Don't say those types of words so that everyone knows you're different. Raise your hands when we're singing so that everyone knows how spiritual you are. Now, I know it sounds a little cynical. I understand that. But, but in our hearts, these are real motivations that we have to sort through at times. And the problem is this. Anytime we're motivated by fear, the motivation of fear or the motivation of hope, getting what we want, those things can change our behavior, but they can't change our hearts. And our biggest problem is not our behavior. Our biggest problem is our heart. We need something greater than fear and hope. We need Jesus. Now, ultimately, apart from Christ, our greatest hopes and our greatest fears will destroy us They'll lead us down paths we never thought possible. C.S. Lewis has a quote that I think is very helpful. He says that idols, these are your functional saviors. These are your true gods. These are your greatest hopes. Idols always break the heart of the worshiper. And he's right. Idols will always break the heart of the worshiper. You worship success, it's going to break your heart. You worship being in control, you're going to be anxious all the time. Do you worship pleasure? It's going to lead you down paths you swore you would never go down. You worship being respected? You're going to become a fraud version, a fake version, a, a counterfeit version of yourself just so people will like you and approve of you. You worship having the perfect life? You're going to sacrifice everything just to feel good about your home and your family. See, these things, they own us, they control us, they enslave us, they shape us, they make us, and then eventually they break us. They break our hearts. Trusting in Jesus and seeing who he really is and what he's really done is the only thing that changes our hearts and our lives. If you, uh, if you want to earn salvation and if you want to prove yourself to others, then you're going you're gonna to find God's grace to be reckless and you're going to find the gospel to be tremendously offensive because the gospel is not just for the insider. The gospel is for the outsider. It's not just for people who have their act together. It's for every single person who says, I realize I don't have my act together. That's exactly who the gospel is for. So many times throughout my life in ministry, I've heard people, uh, I've seen people walk away from the faith, and as they walk away, the last thing they say to me is this, I just can't do it. I just, it's too hard. I can't do what I'm supposed to do, so I'm walking away. And what I want to say to them, and what I say to them sometimes is, you think that's the ending point of Christianity. That's the starting point. That's where it begins. Until you've come to a place where you go, I can't do it. 
then you're relying on your own performance and your own work. But once you come to the point where you say, I can't do this. I know myself. I got a temper. Uh, uh, I'm impatient. Uh, I'm selfish. I'm not wise. I'm not good enough. You're the woman with the issue of blood crawling through the crowd, going after Jesus, going by. I, I, hope, I hope that this is going to work out okay. Surprised when he turns to you and says, daughter, son. Jesus said to Jairus in the story, don't be afraid just trust me. That's what he's still saying to us today because he's greater than our greatest fears and he's greater than our greatest hopes. In closing, let me point out one final thing and then we'll pray. In this story, Jesus heals the woman with the issue of blood on his way to healing this little girl or actually raising this little girl from the dead. On the way, he heals her. Why does that matter? Well, when we read the Gospels, we need a constant awareness of this, that everything Jesus did, everything he did was on the way to the thing he came to do. Every story we're going to study in these next few weeks in the Gospel of Mark's, a Gospel of Mark, when he heals people, when he stills the storm, when he teaches, everything he did was on the way to the thing he came to do. Every healing was on the way to the healing. Every deliverance was on the way to the deliverance. Every moment of salvation was on the way to the moment of salvation. And in this story, we see this woman reach out to touch Jesus' robe to receive healing. But a couple years later, we're going to see Jesus, that same robe is torn off of him. And he's beaten. And that robe is gambled for. In this story, we see people falling at his feet, but in a couple years, people are going to be piercing his feet with nails. In this story, we see Jesus stand outside of death and pull a young girl out of despair and death. But on the cross, Jesus allowed himself to be swallowed up by death. Why? So that he could pull you out of despair and death. So that he could pull me out of despair and death. See, we, we, our whole lives, we fear that we're on the outside. We're on the outside of something. We're missing out. We have this fear of missing out because we're failures, because of our past. But Jesus removes that fear because Jesus was the ultimate insider, right? The ultimate insider who allowed himself to be cast out so that you could be brought in. The one son of God was abandoned upon the cross in whatever way that that happened so that we could be adopted into the family of God so that the father could look at you this morning and say, daughter, son, And on the cross, he also dealt with our fear of death because Jesus drank that cup. He tasted death. He tasted physical death and he tasted spiritual death, abandonment by the Father, so that we could taste life. He laid himself down so that we could be lifted up above our fears and above our hopes because Jesus is greater than our greatest fears and he's greater than our greatest hopes. Let's pray together this morning.